The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Nobody's Mad at Columbo edition. It's Wednesday, February 6, 2019. On today's show, Russian Doll is the latest Netflix. It stars Natasha Lyonne as a tough-as-nails but finally totally broken woman trapped in a Groundhog Day-like cycle of dying and reliving the same night over and over. And then Minding the Gap is the story of a pack of skater kids hitting early adulthood and not exactly growing up. It's on Hulu. It won a big Sundance Prize. It's nominated for an Oscar, and it's amazing. And finally, the scene is one of the building blocks of a movie. Some are good, some are great, and some are just totally unforgettable. I mean, I think one can fairly use the word iconic in this instance. We ask why with Kay Austin Collins and Richard Lawson of Vanity Fair, who put together a remarkable package on great scenes and what uh, goes into making them. Joining me today is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Russian Doll stars Natasha Lyonne as Nadia, a woman who on her 36th birthday begins dying over and over, only to reawaken at the same time on that same evening in the same place in the bathroom at her own birthday party. She's a leather-throated tough chick. She's a video game programmer. She's a great character, I have to say, and a great performance. What follows is an excavation of Nadia's excruciating existence. Uh, it's also a meditation on repetition time, the claims of the past, and what self-haunting creatures we all are. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. Honestly, I think I'd feel better if you just told me you sound like a crazy bitch. No, I just want to understand. So, you think you were hit by a car while you were chasing your cat, and now you're reliving your birthday? No, I don't think. I'm telling you it actually happened. Okay, well, let's say that you were actually hit by a car. Again, not hypothetical. Just a fact is what I'm trying to tell you. So somebody who was actually struck by a vehicle maybe would have marks or something, but you right now look fantastic. In fact, you look beautiful. Okay, thank you. But now I just feel like we're talking hurt. about something else. I'm grateful that you're complimenting me. I'm not. But you're not really hearing. No, me. I'm just saying it didn't seem like it affected you. Whatever this thing that happened. Oh, I see. So now it's just a metaphor for our relationship. My point is, is that you're okay. Uh, yeah, I did smoke one of Maxine's joints, and I think that uh, maybe it's just yeah. Me and cocaine are like oil and vinegar. Uh, I just think I'm I'm not good at mixing substances. Or metaphors. Uh, that's actually it's a really good dipstick. It gives you a sense of the writing of the show. Julia, I'll start with you. Um, so the question of the show, obviously, is can she escape her, you know, self-imposed purgatory? But the question that the show is facing is can it pay off on its debt to Groundhog Day, which is so glaringly obvious. I think we have to at least uh, start with it, even if we eventually um, dispose of it. But what do you make of this? Well, I'm not. First of all, I'm not sure Groundhog Day gets exclusive permanent rights to the concept of uh, a human stuck in a repetitive time loop used as uh, a way to explore whether humans can ever learn from their mistakes or they're totally trapped by uh, fate and their human foibles. And you know, there was that great Tom Cruise movie, um, Edge of Tomorrow, although it had a much better title in Britain: Live, Die, Repeat. Anyway, totally great action movie. And now we have. Uh, a Natasha Leone vehicle, which why hasn't anybody given 
Natasha Leone more vehicles. You know, she's one of the creators of the show, and you can tell it's finally a project that is designed to set off all of her particular talents and delights as an actress. Like, people should have been giving Natasha Leone as many vehicles as they've given all the stars of Fast and the Furious over the last 17 movies. Like, yes, it is very, very satisfying to watch Natasha Leone command the screen uh, and Bill Murray up this dark um, Alphabet City Groundhog Day Redux. I'm I'm in basically is my answer. Mm. I mean, after Orange Is the New Black, I'm not sure you can say that Natasha Leone has been that deserved lately. She has a, a very beautifully cut out role for her in that show. But I agree, Julia, that she needs to she has needed to have a protagonist situation for some time because there's nobody like Natasha Leone, and this show is so formed by her sensibility and personality. I mean, I have to preface my remarks on it by just saying I haven't been this into a TV show we've talked about in a long time. And this makes me think about our conversation a few weeks ago with Willa about, you know, peak TV and TV exhaustion and whether we've gotten to a point where all these bingeable shows become somewhat interchangeable because you guys should just know that I was up until three last night and I was up until three last night because I binged this entire show, which doesn't take that long. <laughs> it's it's eight 25-minute episodes. And as you're always hearing me complain in our TV segments, I feel like every show, especially these Netflix dump them all at once shows are always padded like always, always, no matter how interesting the premise is, that there's fat that could be cut away. And that is not true of this show. It truly is a Russian doll. I mean, both in the sense that it's this recursive story that keeps regenerating itself, but also it's just this small, pleasing, gem-like object that, you know, each each episode is a really nice standalone episode. The entire season, it, might, it may be a season or it may be the entire show. We don't know because it hasn't been renewed yet. But I just so appreciated that it had precision, concision, and shape. And that hasn't been true of so many TV shows we've talked about, no matter how interesting the premise is. Wouldn't you all agree? I mean, I loved this show. I thought it was fantastic. Um, I very liked the show without especially loving it. Um, I mean, to me, you can't avoid Groundhog Day. I mean, it's true it has no monopoly on the premise, but it is a great and iconic movie about exactly the same thing to the point where one wonders, has no one in this universe ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? Like, it, it just, it, it it's a little unavoidable. That said, it, with the, you know, sort of the Sopranos being in the air again, one is reminded that a really good comedy of one style analyzed this co-appeared alongside simultaneously alongside the Sopranos with the exact same premise of the psychopath mob boss who goes to see a shrink. They were done in very different styles to very different effects and were both superb. So eh, I kind of come out somewhere in between on that. But the I I she carries the show. She's it's her sensibility that went into it. She co-created it with Amy Amy Poehler. Amy Poehler's sense of humor is everywhere uh uh on this um to great effect. It's very, very, very funny. It's very written. Uh, the jokes are are self-conscious and crafted without being sore thumbs at all. It's, it's, it, I binged it as well. I haven't quite finished it, but I, I, I found I couldn't stop watching it. Um, I thought that there was an interesting difference with Groundhog Day um, that, that makes this distinctive in addition to Leone's, Leone's performance, which is, you know, he exits the loop by doing very little psychotherapeutic self-exploration if you if you go back to the movie which i do think is a classic but he's you know he's not really digging down into his past or his damage uh and that's what this one is absolutely about i mean this one's a little more self-conscious of the string theory multiversity aspects of 
time. It's it, it gets into the metaphysics of why you might reappear and whether or not these multiple universes in which you've died coexist with one another. Um, but it also it's very much about the character depth psychologizing, drilling down into what the actual elemental source of her misery uh, is. Um, and that I actually think was done um, uh, totally compellingly and totally movingly. And that um, made it work for me. I mean, because after all, these are wisdom parables, right? And for that to work, the show itself has to be wise about why human beings are doomed to their own patterns, self-imposed patterns of self-punishment. I mean, why are we the fucking miserable creatures we are is is a is a pretty it's like it's a pretty fucking deep and hard question to get at and and like why you build around yourself the same circumstances over and over and over again, why you pattern out the same way over and over and over again and then project onto the circumstances the origins of your pain whereas your pain is the origin of the circumstances like the you know the show's wise about this shit um and so i i i guess in the end i did sort of love it what can i say <laughs> yeah steve i think part of what really sets natasha leone's performance apart in this in this role of this this damaged but very lovable character who to me was kind of a peter falk retread you know she tries to solve the mystery of her own death she's just mm. she's a total columbo right this kind of yeah. shambling smoking you know kind of a, a, a mess but a, a very endearing one um but you know in her own life natasha leone who's been a guest at one of our live shows in the past and was a absolutely delightful guest is that she's been through some shit of her own i mean this this character has a past that we learn about slowly throughout the show it's not taken autobiographically from Natasha Leone's own past but like her past it, it contains some uh, some really serious brushes with violence addiction etc and you know Leone has almost died herself from her from her drug addiction she spent months and months in the hospital I don't know about 10 years ago or so and uh, and is now sober and clean but is still a heavy smoker, and that comes across in the way both her character's raspy voice and in the fact that when she smokes, unlike most Jim Bunny actresses, you know, sucking on a cigarette, she actually seems to need it and to know what she's doing. And that side of Leon's personality that's sort of spiky and off balance and, you know, sort of prone to danger is something that you can really sense in this character and that really fleshes her out. One question I have for you guys, and I watched four episodes rather than the full eight, is I found the whole thing compelling. I found... Leon's performance amazing, and of course, yes, she's she's had renewed prominence with her role in Orange Is the New Black, but that's that's sort of the ensemble piece that gives everybody a good meaty part, which is one of its charms. But it's just fun to see her be the center of the show, like really the the core of the whole thing. Um, but I did have a question about because it's sort of a puzzle box, and you can tell even before you get to the end of the puzzle whether it sticks the landing or has something interesting to say. And I've definitely spoken to several people who've watched the whole thing twice because they want to catch the mysteries and mischief in the early episodes that that turn out to be hidden clues and secrets that become revealed in later episodes. So does the puzzle work? Is it a good puzzle? Does it does it stick the landing? Does it have something to say about human nature? Or is it just um, really, really fun, Natasha Leone? Badassery. I mean, I wouldn't be wriggling in my seat about how this is my favorite TV show we've talked about in forever if it didn't stick the landing. I think the ending is so good that I sort of wish there weren't future seasons because it really mm. stands alone as a completely told story. And I'm not quite sure where the two main character arcs, which are Natasha Leone's and the, the character, we won't give too much away about who he is, but the character Alan, who becomes a major figure in the series as well. He's played by Charlie Barnett. And both of their arcs seem so 
completed and converged at the end that I'm not sure where it would go next. But yeah, I think the finale was one of the strongest parts. And I can see why you would want to go back and rewatch because it truly is a puzzle. More so than Groundhog Day, in a way, you get to know many people at the party, this birthday party that she keeps returning to. So a throwaway conversation you hear a party guest saying that you think is an extra ends up figuring into a later arc in the show. And uh, and the way that those things are nested is so intricate that I can imagine rewatching. All right. Well, it's uh, Russian Dial. It's on Netflix. We all basically love it. So check it out. All right. Moving on. All right, before we go any further, I'm sure we have some uh, business to talk about. Uh, Dana, what do you have there? Steve, our only business today is to let listeners know what our Slate Plus segment will be. And it's going to be a last-minute audible call by the three of us, the Super Bowl, uh, a game that Julia and you have strong feelings about and that I was only vaguely aware it was happening. We're not talking about the football itself. We're not even talking about the ads. We're just going to talk about the Super Bowl as an American cultural phenomenon and why and how it seems to be in irreversible decline. If you want to Sign up for Slate Plus so that you can hear that segment and many other great segments and extra features that you get for membership in the magazine. You can go to slate.com slash culture plus and sign up today. Minding the Gap is a documentary. It's on Hulu right now. It's about a pack of young, but maybe no longer quite so young skateboarders, those kids that you see surfing down hand railings, tumbling, tumbling into heaps on, uh, on the concrete and then bounding up like they're Gumby. The pleasure in the skate is surpassed perhaps only by the pleasure of being in the pack. It's in-jokes, it's pecking orders. In this instance, the charismatic Pied Piper is Zach, who's 23 when the documentary begins. He has a new kid. Um, and we get to know Zach as the documentary goes along as a, as a high school dropout, very sweet, but also very troubled man-child in the course of which the movie turns into a documentary about America eating its young. Rockford, Illinois, where it takes place, is one of the most dangerous medium-sized cities in the country. And as we come to learn, a domestic violence capital in the United States, a community in which love is inseparable from violence. Uh, this is an extraordinary movie. Why don't we listen to a clip? Are you going to put me smoking weed? Thing? Maybe. Dude, I don't think just like to do it. Territory. I've given you free range. I mean, I, I have no stipulation. <coughs> I've always needed more out of life, more out of where I was. You know, my parents ran this very controlling house, and so I ran away a lot. By like 16, I was no longer living with my parents, like at all. I just wanted to fucking escape. You ready for some fucking intense action? Take one. Dana, this is, I'll start with you. This is one of those uh, movies that you watch with your guts as much as with your eyes. Um, I don't mean to overly focus on Zach. It's it's about each member of this group, one of whom is actually making the documentary and made it over a period of years, it feels like. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. I just thought this was an astonishing document. Why don't you take it away? Tell me what you thought of it. Yeah, I mean, on my top 10 list, definitely one of my favorites, if not favorite doc of the year and really pleased to see it on the uh, on the Oscar nominations list. I mean, even if it doesn't win anything, it's it's, it's an incredible accomplishment for Bing Liu, the filmmaker who was only 24 when this movie came out. He may be 25 now. I don't know. Uh, he was he's been working as a videographer and, you know, working in the world of film. But this is his first feature film that he's directed. And it was made, as you say, over the course of 12 years in the lives of him and his his two close skateboarding buddies. Bing Liu also worked on the crew of America to Me, that Steve James documentary about high school in Chicago that we talked about a few months ago. And uh, he can he can wield a camera, this kid. And the the movie starts out 
with the footage taken in their younger days with the, the three of them skating along together. And you can see from just the fluidity of the camera movement in this opening shot where they're all skating together that the camera is actually on the skateboard with the filmmaker. And, and that, that sort of stands for me for this whole film and how he has a perspective that no one else could have. Nobody from the outside could have filmed and told this story in the way that he can because his camera sort of expresses what it's like to be on a skateboard, to be in these friendships and to grow up in this world. So there's a real intimacy to this document, uh, especially in the latter, I would say, half to two thirds of the movie when the kids are older. You know, we skip. There's a lot there's a lot of editing, very fluid editing, partly by Bing Liu. He co-edited the movie as well between and among these different periods of their life. But as we get toward the end and they're older, they're maybe in their early 20s rather than their their late teens. um, You start to really see the, the fissures that and the damage in their lives that caused them to need to bond over skating in the way that they did. And without giving anything away, because it all unfolds over the course of the documentary, all three of these kids have, you know, violence and abuse and suffering in their past lives and their present lives. And uh, and that also gets unfurled in a way that's um, it's very painful. It's, it's a hard movie to watch with a lot of sad, hard things in it. But there's also something really hopeful about this documentary. I wonder if you two found that, too, is that even though it's about a world in which grim things are happening, that there is a sense of of hope or or inspiration is the wrong word. But you don't walk out of it feeling like these kids are doomed. You walk out of it feeling like you're rooting for them. You hope that they're okay, and you want to go back and visit them again. I think that's true. And I think part of it is because of how aware you are throughout the whole thing of the marvel of Bing Lu being able to conceive of this film about his own past. I mean, weirdly, one movie that this movie has made me think about is Roma, right? Which is, you know, if if Alfonso Cuaron is one of the absolute master best directors working today, and one of his first movies, Y Tu Mama Tambien, was about, a, you know, kind of youth and growing up uh, and you know, had had pieces of of his biography in it, but it took him until this incredible period of maturity to recreate his childhood and try to resituate his understanding of a key figure in it and what had happened. The ability of this kid, Bing Lu, at twenty four, to have the perspective and wisdom on his own growing up is just so astonishing. And so part of what makes you feel hopeful is just the humanity and curiosity and inquiry that is deployed towards his friends' lives and his own. And uh, you just spend the whole movie marveling that it exists, that anyone could be so deft and wise and assured in their confidence about how to tell this incredibly complicated, gnarly, dark painful story. It's just such a beautiful object uh, that, that to me, that's where part of the hopefulness comes from. Part of it is watching, I suppose, the joys of the friendships, even as they evolve and change. But part of it is just the beauty of the story that's being told. Is that where it comes from for you, Dan, or do you think there's another source for it? No, I guess it is that. It's the fact that the film was able to be made, that these friendships, however tenuous, are are somehow holding together at the end. I feel like it's, it is a movie about persistence and resistance, but not at all in a, in a signposted sort of, you know, um, flag-waving way. It's it's a movie about surviving hard times and how, and how skateboarding and also making art can be ways to escape and also to transcend those those lives. 
Yeah, I have a unlimited love for this movie. I don't, I'm not sure I have quite the optimism, um, afterglow of optimism, or or the dim silver lining of optimism that you guys have around it. I mean, it what optimism it has is earned the hard way because it's absolutely doc documentary about not only the joys of skateboarding and running in a pack of friends, it's obviously a documentary about violent fathers and violent male would-be father figures um, and the total betrayal of, of you know, uh, discipline-wielded, violence-wielded as a form of discipline and even kind of revenge on life that some of the men in this broken community seem to want to take out on on children in one way or another. And the great question of the movie that, that gets asked implicitly um, early on is whether this kind of sweet-faced, charismatic kid, Zach, the pack leader, whether or not all of the all of the ways in which a community like Rockford, you know, forces individuals against maybe even their own better nature to embody violence and repeat its cycles in their own families, to what degree is what's clearly a sweet and charismatic nature in this kid going to be overwhelmed by the power of the cycle with his own kid and his own wife? And somewhere early on, maybe maybe possibly midway through the documentary, she's explaining he's made a tape recording of her when she's screaming at him violently as a way to vindicate himself with his friends. Like, look at how crazy she is. Well, she then tells the, you know, the camera talks into the camera later at a different moment, filming at a different moment, tells the camera, you know, well, he was beating me before that happened. And then she says something. I, I mean, I just, I had to write it down. She says he broke his coffee tables with my body, you know, and you know, whatever optimism this movie gets to, it is through, the thickest morass of of um, violence as a social phenomenon, and what blows me away about the movie more than anything is the is the wisdom with which it balances the completely intimate and personal universe, self created universe of these kids, um, uh, with uh, an awareness of much, much larger, much more impersonal, totally impersonal in some respects, forces that are arrayed against them. And I love the idea that this movie got made, and I love the fact that these kids can find joy in one another and in skateboards. I'm not so sure that it's a fair fight. I think that's part of what's so poignant and beautiful about it is you don't come away feeling like, well, good thing everybody's an extraordinary generational documentary artist and is able to process <laughs> the grief of their community yeah. into a beautiful Sundance Award film. Like, it feels really rare and lucky that we happen to have this window into this world in Bing Lu and that his curiosities are such. The other thing I loved about it, I will just confess, I like don't like I have like a little bit of a fear of skateboards. Like I don't love skateboards as a thing. Like, so I've as, never a thi been... as a thing to ride on yourself or to watch people skate? Certainly not to ride on myself. I'm too tall. I didn't learn young enough. You cannot learn balance sports as a mm -hmm. tall person. You're just your center of gravity is too high. And if you are a timid, not particularly athletic, tall person who didn't get into it as a kid, like it just feels too bone breaky to me. But no, like I... If I'm walking down a street and I hear like the of a skateboard or a scooter coming behind me, I like feel like it's going to bang me in the ankles. Like I just have a, a reflexive tensing uh, around skateboarding. And then also I just 
I feel like never in my life have I seen anyone successfully do an ollie. Like all you do, all you see is kids trying to ollie and failing. And you're just like, what? what is the, what are you doing? Like you just keep trying to flip the fucking board. It just goes everywhere and you shoot out of the street and you wipe out. Like, what are you doing? I just didn't get it. I just feel, I've been a fogey about skateboarding since I was like 16. And the feeling that the film gives you, I mean, it's almost like a ride because of, because the camera, you know, you, you you begin to sense even from the first moments of the film that in a lot of places the camera is on the skateboard. Um, you're like, oh, all right. I could see why they would be chasing this forever. Like it makes them feel like flying. It makes them feel free. It makes, it's, it's another way to access beauty um, in, in this world. And maybe that should have been obvious to me, but, but getting to, um, kind of drop in on that feeling is exciting and beautiful. And I'm sorry to all of the wiped out skateboard kids I ever sneered at. Oh. Mm. Yeah, that's sort of what I meant about only this person could make this film. I mean, the, he doesn't have to have somebody sit in front of the camera and say everything you just said. It's just communicated by the the very movement of the skating camera itself. Yeah. And also and there's wit. There's wit about that wiping out. Like it's it's not it it it, it there's just various moments and ways in which the film is edited, the way it uses sound, where sometimes these beautiful soaring coasting runs through the city are then interrupted by um abrupt <laughs> abrupt uh departures, abruptly being cast out of that beauty by biting it somehow. Um and that also helped me understand a little bit more about skateboarding too, I think. Mm. All right. Well, the movie's Minding the Gap. It's on Hulu. It's extraordinary. It really is. This is one of those ones where I think all three of us are uh, pounding the table in unison. Please, please, please watch it and uh, report back. Let us know what you thought of it. Um, all right, moving on. Art can be iconic. Think of Mona Lisa or the soup guy. I hate the word iconic, by the way. Let me just say that up front. But it can be. It can achieve that status. So, for example, like Andy Warhol's soup cans, literature too, two roads diverged in the yellowwood, et cetera, et cetera. You can, um, I, I could argue that the iconic unit of a movie is less maybe the shot, but more the scene. So think of Leo and Kate on the prow of the Titanic, um, or perhaps the chest wax and 40-year-old virgin, and of course, storming the beach in uh, Omaha Beach and uh, Spielberg saving Private Ryan. Well, a Kay Austin Collins and Richard Lawson of Vanity Fair have done a remarkable thing. They put together a list of 25 scenes over 25 years, super iconic scenes, and then got people to talk about how they were made. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, how'd you put this together? What was the... How'd you come up with the list? Yeah, I mean, we had this meeting months ago uh, where we were trying to we knew that the 25th Hollywood issue of Vanity Fair was coming up and we wanted to do something to mark that occasion and so we we said we, you know we were not going to do the 25 best movies since 1995 or you know that that felt too broad and so when we narrowed down um we did kind of come to a sort of crossroads between what's iconic and what's influential and i think that like a lot of the scenes on our list are iconic but a lot of scenes that are not included that are iconic were not didn't influence movies, you know, going forward, and so that's why we had a sort of difficult. I mean, I don't know if you would categorize it as difficult, Kim, but we had a, a tricky discussion about, like, you know, I was really against putting Titanic on the list because I was, I was like, that was certainly iconic, but what did it influence really? But then I was sort of talked out of it. So it it really started. We we wanted to have a conversation about 
how we got to where we are in movies now uh, since the first Hollywood issue. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the unit under consideration, which is the scene. I think, and I may be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure Billy Wilder once said that that for a movie to work, it only needs three really good scenes. Like, there's something about that. That like so much of the weight of the, of a movie hangs on the peg of a few cr- critical, you know, really critical scenes, and so much of our memory about a movie. Uh, returns to um, you know uh, storming the beach or you know all the ones that you really selected. I thought I thought it was a beautifully you know um, curated list. Talk a little bit about uh, about about these scenes and what made these. Was there something common to the twenty five that made these scenes so memorable, so important, so influential? I mean, I think that you can look at it in terms of the micro, in, in terms of like what what's the one thing you remember about a movie? I think if you brought up Saving Private Ryan, people are like, oh, that that beach scene, that's crazy. I mean, there are many other wonderful moments in that movie, but, um, you know, and I think similar to the Scream cold open, which we have, which, you know, we sort of argue launched this sort of teen boom of the 90s uh, and, you know, instilled in all of us a sort of meta self-awareness about what we watch and how we talk about what we like. Um, you know, so that was that was the takeaway for, 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 for particular movies being like, OK, that's the one scene from that movie. But in a broader sense, like I think that, you know, we also kind of talk about in this new Hollywood issue about how this is the first generation of movies that the Internet uh, sort of existed uh, for to support, to kind of help further their iconography and a a lot of these scenes that ended up on our list are the ones that have been memed or made into gifs or you know whatever sort of other internet ephemera uh uh can be made out of a movie um and so i think that like while you know for the matrix example uh, for example i think in some ways the the fight choreography in the opening scene with carrie and moth maybe influence fight choreography in action movies more than the bullet dodging scene, which is what we listed. But how, who can argue that the bullet dodging scene is not the most referenced one from The Matrix? Right. Um, if only because that bullet time effect is now omnipresent, right? In every mm-hmm. action movie you have to have, there's a technical name for it, and I can't remember what it is, but that kind of editing where you essentially freeze an image and yet have the camera move within the frozen image. Absolutely. That was everywhere after that scene to to movie's detriment <laughs> but it's everywhere now i mean it's, you it's, see yeah. it on tv it's in commercials yes it's not necessarily positive influence no yeah. well that's the other thing it's like yeah. we, that we have one i mean i feel bad because we got to actually get a great really nice quote from Uma mcgregor about um his star wars prequel you know we have the scene where he you know, he basically confronts the soon-to-be darth vader and anakin skywalker uh and my write-up of it is so negative and he and he, and, and ewan says this really nice thing about you know how like the kids who saw that movie really like it but i think that that movie negatively influenced film uh and that scene um did uh and but we still have it on the list because like it's important to talk and i think also um if you look at like the we have a lord of the Rings scene with Gollum um arguing with himself uh you know that great andy circus mocap performance that uh is wonderful to watch but also like do we like motion capture i don't and i think it's been kind of a bad thing for for cinema i like it when he does it yeah i agree <laughs> at the moment he is sort of the sole artist who can yeah. really do something impressive in motion capture and i think that scene was i mean to to talk again about influence just that scene i think was the first time that i remember people really thinking should we be nominating this kind of performance for an award because of his performance throughout the series but really in that scene it was just sort of like oh this is like acting this is like actual performance i think that people didn't really know that before him to be honest. But remind me, because I'm bad at remembering anything about the Oscars. Has a motion capture performance ever been nominated for an acting award? As uh, of Meryl Streep for Florence Foster Jenkins. 
Sandra uh, Bullock for Gravity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, no, uh, no, not technically. No, I mean, and no. I think I think that Andy Serkis has represented this great existential debate about, um, and I think you know, being that the the Academy uh, particularly is you know the the largest branch of that group is is actors, and I think they're justifiably threatened by what this means. I mean, and and you take this you take this scene in the Two Towers several steps further, and you have. Uh, Carrie Fisher appearing at the end of Rogue One, you know, in a scene that she did not record or, you know, and they, but they just kind of grafted her face, uh, you know, and her voice. And you have that that repeating again. Well, and but more... on behalf of Andy Serkis, he's not dead. No, no <laughs> he's I know. Doing something. I know. So I'm but we I'm saying like, Andy Serkis remains the one, like you said, yeah. the one good example of this thus far, where I think a lot. I mean, you know, they're calling the new Lion King movie live action. And it's like, no, I mean, I guess there were actors in a sort of studio somewhere, but like it's animated. Um, So I think we're still having that debate, which is why, you know, the two towers kicking off that debate felt so um, significant. I have I have one challenge for you guys, and this comes indirectly via Forrest Wickman, our culture editor. We were talking about this list and what a great idea it was to do a scene list and kind of going over some of our what we would have brought to the list, et cetera. And he wanted to know why you thought which scene was it? Why you thought that the I drink your milkshake scene at the end of There Will Be Blood is influential? He agreed that it was an amazing scene and that it's what you remember about that movie. But he was saying that precisely what set it apart is that it's it's so bizarre and unexpected and, and that it hasn't been repeated elsewhere. Well, I think I think it hasn't been repeated elsewhere. But I also think that you have to have a way of crowning Paul Thomas Anderson as big, popular, mainstream altruism for a certain generation of filmgoers in the last 25 years who isn't Tarantino. Um, And I think that scene, and I also think that you have to have a way of crowning Daniel Day-Lewis as the ascending major acting force of the last 25 years. Um, And I think that those two moments just sort of, uh, those two things rather, kind of go hand in hand in that moment. But I also just think that, I think that I Drink Your Milkshake seeped into the culture. I think that people say that. It certainly got memed, that's for sure. It it got memed before we were really calling things memes in that way. Um, And I don't know. It's like, I don't know. I, I, for me, that was like, it was like an obvious choice for something influential, but I guess it's right in terms of other movies imitating it. No, but in terms of like a thing that, that had presence beyond the movie that you didn't need to see that movie to know what that was referencing that came up in South Park that came up everywhere. It's like, it's like already as soon as that happens in a movie, you know, something like the Simpsons is going to do something with that. You know, SNL is going to yeah, do something with that. It's a broader that. definition of influence. It, it I is. See that. Yeah. I mean, I think the intersection of the, of the, you know, kind of so-called art house and more pop vira- vir- virality, like that moment um, allowed for the sort of language of like cinema fan you know, fandom to kind of meld with a broader sort of pop culture sensibility. And I think that we see that repeated, um, you know, with like Call Me By Your Name memes and, you know, like movies that previously would not have been sort of like discussion at a dive bar on a Friday night now become that because we have, you know, sort of the the weird humor of I Drink Your Milkshake, m- m- I Drink Your Milkshake mixed with the sort of dire what that scene's actually about right. you know and I so I think it's a new way to kind of appreciate something that's a really serious work of art I guess I mean a, a line that's analogous to I drink your milkshake in some way in your roundup is uh, is I just can't quit you from Brokeback Mountain right I mean which right. also got Absolutely. sort of mockingly memed again not a concept at the time but you right. know it was certainly passed around and in, in a way used to to poke fun at the movie but it's right. it's, a, it's a really hardcore moment in the movie it, it really I, summarizes the, the, the struggle at the movie's core totally I mean it's something that I say to my cats still 
um, all the time <laughs> when they mess up all the time. I say, I wish I could. It's like, it's like I a- tell my dog I could drink her milkshake. <laughs> right. Yeah. One thing that strikes me about the list is this um, kind of multivarious definition of the word influence, which I loved about it. I mean, first of all, yes, influence on how we talk, influence on the cultural conversation, influence on how we think about things is a testament to the power of movies for the last 25 years, even though one might argue that the last 25 years have been disastrous for movies as an art form and, in fact, have seen them seed ground to many other art forms, particularly over the last 10. Um, So that's, uh, to me, including the things that made us talk, the things that became touchstones for the whole culture makes sense. But I was struck by how many of the examples in the list are actually about technological advances in filmmaking. And I think there's a temptation to see cinema as a relatively static form whose basic devices were worked out last century and whose technological advances mostly go to film's detriment, like, oh, man, CGI, blah, 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 you know, the, the sense that that to the degree that we are in the future of filmmaking, it's not to the good of storytelling. And so I loved some of the examples that pointed to that and felt my most influential scene of the last 25 years that is missing is anything from the Spider-Man, Spider-Verse movie, because I do feel like watching that movie is the thing I've most felt like, oh my God, I'm watching the future. This lo- this feels and looks so different. This is a thing that computers can do that that feels so modern and fresh and exciting. So that was that's my addendum. That's my that's my missing scene. I don't know which scene exactly. Maybe the final battle, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that was definitely um, a, an interesting realization. I don't want to speak for you, Cam, but for me, in, in putting together the list was was like, wow, a lot of these are big studio kind of action-y, adventure-y movies. And the reason for that is exactly that. It's that like kind of running tandem with broader cultures sort of just diving into the internet and let, letting computers kind of just d- dominate our lives. Of course, movies were doing the same thing. And I think that we maybe you know, up close, take it, take that for granted. We just have computer animated movies now and, you know, CGI and all that. It's just kind of part of the, the vernacular. But, 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 you know, just prior to 1995, I mean, you know, the early 90s, that was like revolutionary. It was, it was such a big deal. And so I think we, ha- we have to kind of take a step back and be like, all right, this is what these movies have wrought. And and we we can't kind of give them short drift in a list like this just because we want to talk more about like arty stuff that we love like um, because undeniably that's been the, the largest influence uh, over movies you know in since nineteen ninety five absolutely yeah I mean I think if anything our biggest omission was the biggest practical effect in movies right now which is Tom Cruise <laughs> I think I think that's the only thing that I regret <laughs> not putting on there is one of his suicidal stunts. Um, less because other people are doing that because other people's insurance will not let them do that more because, um, he's just a canon unto himself. But, but like, again, that's, that's, that's a matter of, you know, that's not about a scene per se, although I can think of scenes. It's more just about, this is something that seems worth thinking about in some way, which is like really what most of our choices are about. Like we choose something from, you know, from the Nancy Myers canon, because it's like everyone's saying that rom-coms are dead. But actually, Nancy Myers has been making some form of rom-com in a different way for a different kind of audience for a long time. Um, just, you know, just thinking a bit more expansively in those terms was healthy, I think. You know, there's this argument that TV and um, movies have sort of exchanged places in terms of prestige and, you know, the space that they occupy in 
viewers. Um, and yet television be, for, for being serial for, you know, the eight to 12 hour format, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't derive its force from economy of presentation. Therefore, the scene's not quite as important. Therefore, it's not, and it's on a small screen typically. It's not iconic in the same way. Were you a little bit aware of that as you were putting this together? There's just something that that 90 minute to two and a half hour format, typically in a movie theater, hopefully still sitting in the dark, watching a movie that it just imprints upon us at a at an emotional and primal level that television can't? Yeah, well, I think that there's an interesting thing happening on television, um, particularly with streaming shows on Netflix and whatnot, where, you know, it would I would be hard-pressed to come up with a list of, like, the most iconic or influential episodes of Stranger Things because it all just sort of bleeds into mm-hmm. one, like, yep. like one 10-hour sit, you know? Yep. And I think that there are certain shows that are doing that still that have, you know, that, that episodes have their own arcs that make them memorable, like a, like a classic Buffy episode or a Sopranos episode or whatever, while also telling a larger season long story. But it, that's, that's getting rarer and rarer. You know, we're more sort of inured to the sort of, you know, we're telling one 13 hour story. Yeah. But movies remain fixed. I mean, there is just that 90 to, you know, however long minutes. Five hours. Five hours. Marvel Marvel movie. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Infinity War 2 is, I think, going to be a three-day experience. Um, That that allow them to linger more, you know. I, I... have devoured seasons of TV shows. I've seen two seasons of Peaky Blinders. I could not tell you a single thing about what happens on that show, but I can absolutely dial into a scene I saw in a movie because it was only that one time. It was only this fixed story. Um, And so I think in doing the list, I realized, um, and I also wrote an essay in the magazine kind of about the last 25 years in movies that helped me also come to this realization of like how much I appreciate the form. Um, I mean, obviously I cover it for a living, but um, it still holds a distinction over television. Actually, holds more of a distinction over television now. I think because what what's happening on TV has sort of bl- bl- bled the the borders between um, story and I don't know time. Yeah, and I mean, I also I just think that given the way that TV still works, even if you're talking about binging all of a season of a show in a night, um, I think so much of our work is culture writers, cultural producers, et cetera, alongside the TV and movie industries is doing the work of calling things iconic the week that they happen. Whereas with movies, you know, they're still distributed unevenly. People still see them at a different pace. It doesn't quite work that same way, which is partially hard for us as people writing about movies because it means just like in terms of things like traffic, things that don't happen in quite the same way. But on the other hand, it does mean that like in terms of like an historical lens that it things just seep out more slowly. Like I try to imagine a movie like there will be there will be blood coming out today, um, and people writing about the I drink your milkshake scene the week that the movie comes out, and most people not knowing what that's talking about as a, as a, as a, like a historical experience that like now like when that movie came out, everyone around me was talking about it because everyone seemed to be seeing it. It felt like monoculture in a way that kind of an American major independent movie today doesn't necessarily immediately feel that way. Um, and there's things like that. And that, that was feel, only 10 years ago. It was so. only 10 years ago, you know, and granted, I was like on a college campus when it came out. But but I just felt like it was a different kind of moment for these things, um, which is partially, I think, what's actually sort of sort of fun about movies that you don't really know immediately what's going to stick. And part of what we're looking at with this list is just like it is exceptional that Get Out has a thing that stuck immediately mm. for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like that's like exceptional. 
Yeah. So that well, has someone, to be there. someone on Twitter said that the list was a kind of a subtle indictment of 2010s filmmaking. And it was like, well, no, we just don't know necessarily like what is going to be influential. So, but, but right. Get Out felt like the most kind of it's absolutely the most recent film on our list um, because it just felt immediately seismic. And I don't know that you have immediate seismics with with television. I think that that's mm. that that's a it's a different it's a different um, d- digestive period and like sort of just, like it it. Um, we we process movies uh, in a particular way, which I think was your original kind of you were getting at in your original question was like there is something still unique about um, the film watching experience, and as much as culture maybe it, its gaze has drifted toward um, longer form storytelling um, and home viewing, um, I think it's movies still matter. You know? yeah. Can I tell yeah. you what I would have brought to the table if yes, I was at the editorial please. meeting? Yeah. And then I want to hear Steve's as well, since Julia already already said her scene. I was thinking that the, um, the a scene from Bridesmaids, and what scene do you think it would be from Bridesmaids? <laughs> that was definitely talked about. And yeah. we we talked about the, can I swear on this? The, yeah, oh, the yeah. shitting in the street. <laughs> That's yeah, the first thing yeah, that came exactly. to mind for me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. you remember Bridesmaids, it's not yeah. necessarily yeah. even the best scene or the funniest scene, but it's the most out there scene. It's the scene that everyone talked about. And I think you could argue that it has pushed, I mean, it certainly has, that movie has made female-led comedies a more viable yeah, marketplace offering. But um, but I think it's also pushed, you know, gross-out comedy and raunch and all of those things into the world of, you know, I'm not going to say female filmmaking because it was not made by a woman, but in, into the world of yeah. all female casts in a way that yeah. it wouldn't have been before. And an era yeah. of star. I mean, like Kristen Wiig being in movies is a big deal. Melissa McCarthy, I think that's where I first really had contact with her in a movie. And I mean, it was an Oscar nominated performance. She like really took off from there. No, I, I completely agree. Yeah. We kind of got in our heads about the sort of influential, like that that sort of moniker. And I think that because we included a scene from the 40-year-old virgin, the, the chest waxing scene... Um, uh, we were like, well, but that predated Bridesmaids. And so we, we have to kind of go to the source and we have to go back and back. I don't know if that methodology was actually that sound. I think yeah. probably Bridesmaids should be on the, the list, I frankly. Agree. Yeah. Um, or even in those terms, I mean, we also talked about there's something about Mary um, with the hair gel. Yeah. yeah, that was on the list for a <laughs> as while. An impor- yeah. As yeah. an important yeah. um, raunch moment. And I mean, these things are sort of fall out because the assignment's 25 and as anyone knows making a list you just have to choose things and then we had to confront that something about Mary in some ways indirectly influenced Green Book and we were like no <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> which is too bad because I still love that movie but no we can't we can't honor him right now so <laughs> alright uh, can I throw out three really quickly yes super fast uh, Toast and Phantom Thread um Tony Stark, I believe, in the first Iron Man movie, which is arguably the turning point in superhero filmmaking, that first scene with, I think it's the first scene, Robert Downey Jr. turning to the camera while things blow up behind him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just thought that launched the uh, MCU. And then um, it's slightly out of the time frame, but I Am God from Malice, the half-forgotten thriller with um, uh, Alec Baldwin. Is it it Alec Baldwin? Cole Kidman, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the, uh, that scene where he says, I am God, I just uh, it just popped into my head as, as like a preposterous scenery-chewing moment in a preposterous movie that somehow completely works and never really faded out of my um, circuitry. So, No, I mean, for the Phantom Thread example in particular, what I would hope is that we just had more... I mean, remember when movies for adults were erotic? <laughs> I would love. I would remember love, when adults were erotic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, right. American when America was erotic, even just I. I would love. I would love for that movie to spur more. Oh, people who are seeing movies who are above the age of eighteen 
um, would love more erotic charge in whatever genre of movie it is. That would be great. If if Paul Thomas Anderson could Paul Thomas Anderson could do that for us, that would be wonderful. It's on him now. Really just like <laughs> but it's true that like it's true that like people poisoning their partners for erotic play is like a thing that has definitely like become a joke in the culture, to be honest. Yeah. Well, sure. a joke for you, not for some some of us. It's reality. <laughs> On that note. Guys, this was a great list, a great segment. It was a real pleasure to have uh, Cam have you back on the show. And Richard, thanks for coming on. And for those of you who haven't seen it, check it out. It's on the web. It's the 25 most influential movie scenes of the last 25 years. It's on the Vanity Fair website, vanityfair.com. Guys, thanks again. That was fun. Thank Thank you. you. This is fun. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast uh, where we endorse De Na Na Na. Steven. Vin Vin. I'm not done. Not done. Not done. <laughs> <laughs> we need to work it into like a contrapuntal duet that we just weave syllables in and out. Actually, this one has a John Cage theme. Hold on. Okay, go. <laughs> you were saying Dana inside <laughs> Nana that whole time, right? I was. Okay, so my endorsement this week for once is uh, is current and topical. It's something that's on the, the bestseller list this week, a book that was just released last week. And I think it's a book that you guys would both delight in. It's actually something I would have fun doing a segment on if you wanted to all read it and talk about it. But uh, I'm endorsing Dryer's English, an utterly correct I was gonna guide email to clarity you guys on the and way style. Way you wait, you were going to endorse say we should it discuss too? that. No, no, but I was just, I just was noticing that it was in the bestseller list. And I was like, we got to talk about this fucking bestselling grammar book. I haven't read a word of it yet. Yeah. It's, it's so somewhat, it's somewhat crazy to me. I mean, no, no offense to Benjamin Dreyer, who's, who's a, a great writer, but it's somewhat of a surprise to me that a grammar and style guide is immediately shooting to the top of the bestseller list. I don't, I don't quite get what contextual uh, events made that the case, um, but it, but it's very worthy of it. Um, it's so Dreyer's English. How do I describe what it is? It's it's sort of a strunk and white style style guide, but it's also a very idiosyncratic and updated for the twenty first century one that deals with such things as you know uh, genderless or different differently gendered pronouns and uh, you know those those grammar rules that are changing so rapidly that we can pretty much now discard them. For example, the singular they right being able to say everyone should hang their hat on a hook. This is something that we've been saying in speech for decades and decades, but it's just only now becoming acceptable in writing. So he talks about that. It's written essentially in a thematic form. So there'll be a chapter about grammar, a chapter about the use of foreign words in English, a chapter about pronouns, etc. But it's just very, very witty and funny. If you follow Benjamin Dreyer, who's a copy chief at Random House Books, on on Twitter, he's a very witty and charming presence, and I essentially just bought the book because I like his voice on Twitter and thought I'd love to hear what he he says about the English language. And even if you know most of these rules, I mean, if you're kind of a, a grammar nerd and a a strunk and white devotee since childhood, you probably know a lot of these rules already. But the way that he talks about their sort of history in in publishing and the way that these rules are changing is just is going to bring something new to your understanding. So Dreyer's English, an utterly correct guide to clarity and style. Um, by Benjamin Dreyer. I'm loving it. I'm about halfway through. Excellent. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I would like to endorse a podcast this week. The podcast is The Dropout, which is uh, an ABC podcast about the Theranos story. There have obviously been lots of versions of the Theranos story over the last few years, Uh, most notably the reporting of John Carreyou, who first exposed exactly what a fraud Theranos was, this kind of amazingly named... Silicon Valley company that promised to extract blood from us more painlessly and tell us whether we are sick more speedily um, and to manage to peddle their technology to huge 
companies like Walgreens without it actually being real. Um, so it's just kind of a marvelous scam and a crazy story. Um, and this ABC podcast about it makes great use of existing depositions. You get to hear Elizabeth Holmes's voice. The show comments on the timbre of Elizabeth Holmes's voice, which apparently um, used to be one way, and then she adopts kind of a founder voice that is lower and more gravitasy uh, in ways that have potentially interesting gender uh, implications. Anyway, great yarn. Two episodes are out. Uh, I recommend it to our listeners. Oh, that's cool. I, that is one of those stories that I I I know that I want to know much more about. I know only that you know, sketchiest outlines of it, of course, is like rage stoking in the most euphoric way. And I I, I'm, I can't wait to, to listen to that. Yeah, um, I think this right. is a good way in. I'm in the same boat of having been like, yeah, 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 that seems interesting. But I'm but I don't really I'm not going to read Bad Blood. And, I, you know, anyway, I just haven't um, I haven't dug in yet. And then this show gave me a way in. And I should disclose to pal of mine uh, worked on it behind the scenes. But uh, I only I only bring our listeners the best pals be damned so I, I think you'd like it steve um dana i just want you to know and i want our listeners to know that you let me down because you never told me that i had to see paddington too <laughs> you never made that clear it's elf-like well, in its greatness you, wait if you'd seen the first paddington though that would have naturally led to the viewing of the second have you seen the first paddington i haven't seen i just saw that i watched the second one with my 12 year old daughter the waning days of her being 12 i thought we could squeeze out a little preteen daddy daughter joy and, and we just loved it we fucking loved it it is it is it's elf-like in its wit charm good-heartedness and elegance of construction and its performances, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ratchet down even further. I mean, my my endorsement is Paddington Two, but r- almost, almost more so, it's Sally Hawkins in Paddington Two. Is so she's so good. <laughs> Her performance is so deft. It's so perfectly scaled. It's like not trying to steal anything from anyone else in the movie. It's not the center of the movie by any means, but some of the best like line readings, tiny little line readings, little looks, little t- I mean she becomes sort of the comic heart of the movie for a little while. I mean there 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 are plenty of competitors, but Julia, I note your conspicuous uh silence here. Have you not seen Paddington 2? I have seen neither Paddington 1 nor Paddington 2. And you actually have kids that are just the right age for it. You definitely have to Paddington out. Do it on the next rainy weekend. Ugh, but as discussed, my stink children don't watch movies. It's it's a travesty. Oh, that's right. You can't get them to watch a whole movie. Hmm. This is the gateway drug. You gotta. I mean, this is. It's so good. It's really, really. It's so. It's so sweet and so charming. I really thought it was the movie movie of the year. I no, it's true, it. and it has that British children's literature sensibility, right, Steve? Yes. Where it's almost like The Wind in the Willows or something. Yes. It's that world that adults and children can both love. It's not condescending in the least. You know, it's it's very uh, m- sort of meticulous in its dialogue, story construction. There's no. Point at which it's just sort of throwing the kids some entertaining bones, right? No, it's like exactly. it's solid all the way down. Hugh Grant, right, fantastic. Takes, ben oh, Wishaw as the wonderful. voice of Paddington. Yes. It's the second great collaboration that Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw have done together this year, right? Along with a very English scandal that that miniseries we talked about. But they're both perfect as well. 
And the mixture, the mixture of life action animation. I mean, we're not even going to get into it. Those movies are perfect. When Paddington was not nominated for a Best Animation Oscar, I mean, I don't really shake my fist at the sky about the Oscars anymore, but that was definitely a, a, a WTF situation because um, I guess it's not quite completely animated. Perhaps it wouldn't have qualified because it's this mix of animation and live action, but it does that so beautifully. Right. I mean, then there's this just genre of movie like Elf or Galaxy Quest or Paddington 2, which cannot get official. It's not built to get official recognition, but ends up a kind of enduring movie nonetheless. Like, you know, the, like, I can what, guarantee What was you, that list? Galaxy Quest, Elf, and Paddington <laughs> I think that's actually, that's <laughs> a very up, good, <laughs> I completely see what they all three have in common. The film critic agrees <laughs> with me, Julia. <laughs> all right. Um, I have a very quick second endorsement. You should watch, listen to the daily podcast from the New York Times. This, the, the, I think it's their two-year anniversary show in which they interview Trump in the Oval Office and you get to this incredible moment at the end of it where Trump, his insecurities are absolutely on his sleeve. He's not even trying to hide them and he essentially begs the New York Times to be nicer to them and that whole dynamic where, where, I mean, talk about like we're in someone else's purgatory because they didn't do the work that Natasha Lyonne is doing in real life and on that that show Russian Doll. Trump, he says, when he says in that podcast, I'm a kid from Jamaica, and he's about to say Jamaica, Queens, but he has to just tart it up a little bit. And he says, Jamaica, Estates, Queens, and I ended up president of the United States, and you haven't written one nice thing about me. We're all living in one man's insecurity. Now, the $64 billion question is, how did we all fit in there? Um, you know, and there are books to be written, including mine, about that subject. But it, at the very least, at that moment, you come nakedly face-to-face with a bottomless, bottomless insecurity that that's so, so who he is, he can't even hide it. Sitting in the Oval Office, he hasn't compensated for it one whit, and he doesn't have the ability to camouflage it, you know, one tiny, tiny bit, and, and that he says that into a fucking hot mic for all of us to hear. I mean, it, it, it is it is a revelation. It is really worth listening to that episode of The Daily. Um, okay. Did you, you guys Dana. hear, did you guys notice, was this a fever dream, or did this really happen? That at the State of the Union tonight, the First Lady plans to bring a young kid whose last name is Trump, who's getting bullied as a, <laughs> yes. as an example of her oh Be Best campaign. Oh the like the, the 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 example of someone who's been bullied is someone who's been bullied for being associated with Trump. It's just like the the the, the most amazing blinkered, <laughs> self involved way of thinking about what bullying is. It's oh. incredible. Yeah, the, the the white kid whose name is is Trump. It's so it's so blinkered. Josh, Josh Trump. I mean, I think you like one 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 way you know you're living through a good time in history is people have the right to deeply nuanced, complex private lives. And one way to know you're living through a nightmare in history is we we're all living in a overdrawn novel. I mean, people have said it over and over again. The names alone of the characters, you know, wouldn't make it through a first pass in a producer meeting. You know, fire the writers, fire the producers. There's a reason it's a joke on Twitter, but it's really true. It's like everything is just so fucking glaringly obvious, and it's the subtext on the surface version of a bad fucking movie script. Well, happy State (laughs) of the Union to you all. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Julia, thanks. Uh, A pleasure as always. Thanks, guys. Uh, Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Uh, we have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. We love to interact with you. We do get great mail. I encourage you to do it if you're at all inclined. We have a producer. His name is Benjamin Frisch. Production assistants Alex Barish for Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.